Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant from the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. If you're not there already, you can find Isaiah 42. We're going to be working through this passage here this morning. Within the greater context of Isaiah, two songs are being sung. The siren song of idolatry and the servant song of salvation. In Greek mythology, the sirens were a group of partly human female creatures that lured sailors onto destructive rocks with their singing. Odysseus and his men encountered the sirens in their long journey back from Troy. Now, the only way to sail safely past them was to make oneself deaf to their enchanting song. And so that's what they tried to do, and they packed wax in their ears so they wouldn't hear the song of the siren and be allured to their death. Well, we use this terminology today, and a siren song may be described as an appeal that lures a person to act against his or her own better judgment. Well, that was the case for Israel. Israel, very seldom did they follow their God. Very seldom did they really follow everything that God set out for them. There are seasons where they were doing all right, but most of the time, Israel lived forsaking their God, embracing foreign gods. She violated the covenant, the vassal treaty, and as a result, Israel would face exile. Even amidst all of that, though that was the reality, Israel kept gravitating toward idolatry. The siren song of idolatry continued to allure Israel in many ways. The surrounding nations, they appear to be prospering. They're following foreign deities. They're following all these gods that God alone says are not gods. And Israel has suffered much at the hands of these pagan nations. 
So for them, Yahweh seems distant at best and impotent or uncaring at worst. You see, these pagan nations, they exalt themselves over Israel. They are thriving in every way. They're thriving financially. They're thriving militarily. They're thriving spiritually. It would be really easy for Israel to to hit pause and go, are we following, are we trusting the right deity? Because as we look around us, everyone else seems to be doing better than us. Everyone else seems to have life going easy. And as they continue to follow the idols, they're rejecting their God. Throughout the context of Isaiah, Yahweh repeatedly sings his song over Israel. And he's attempting to drown out the siren song of idolatry. He exposes the emptiness and futility of idolatry. And he's attempting to allure the nation back to himself. And if you would take the time to read Isaiah 40 through 66 and just see how God is calling out to Israel time after time. We'll consider just a few ways here this morning how God exposes the futility of idolatry. Just before we come into Isaiah 42, the text that was previously read and the text we'll be exploring, the verse just before it in Isaiah 41, 29, God has been talking about the futility of idolatry. And now he says, behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. In Isaiah 42, 17, at the conclusion of our text this morning. He says, They're turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved images, carved idols, who say to metal images, You are gods. In Isaiah 44, 9, God says, All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. All the things that you're chasing that appear to give promise and hope and security and safety and pleasure and happiness are nothing. Emptiness. They're not going to produce what you think they will. And in contrast to this idolatrous song, the siren song that lures, God sings another song, the servant song of salvation. This is the first of four servant songs, our text this morning. And it will serve as the introduction. It sets the tone for the others. It'll establish the tempo and the rhythm. So I want you to think of these four servant songs together like four verses of one epic poem. Take them all together. Read them one after another. In this song that God is singing to the nation of Israel, but the interesting turn is it's not to the nation of Israel alone. It's also to the nations, plural. And so this text that we'll be focusing on this morning in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, has two movements. The first one is God's chosen servant in verses 1 through 4. And the second one in verses 5 through 9, he's going to speak directly to his servant and commissioning him. So let's pause at this moment. I know we we continue to pray throughout this service But we're going to take a moment right now and just ask God to specifically do a work in this moment. Every aspect of what we do is intentional 
and for fellowship and for worship of God. And now as we come to unpacking his text, we just really want to pause and ask him to do what only he can do. So let's do that now. Father, as we have gathered corporately to worship you, we can gather in this place for right and wrong reasons. We check our motives now. We invite you to take your text and do a work in our hearts and minds, a work that only you can do, a work that is far superior to what I can even share this morning. I pray that your spirit would deliver the message that we need to hear, that the application will be made, and that you alone would be trusted, that we would lean into you, that we would believe you and take you at your word. Be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. So these first four verses is direct contrast to the idolatrous paganism that Israel seems to be so enamored with. They're captivated by everything that their eyes can see. Ever since Exodus, they wanted a God that they could see and touch, that was tangible, one that they could follow, one that represented the unseen God. And God continually chides them for this. But in contrast to the idolatry, God introduces his own candidate to the race, if we can say it this way. If someone is going to announce themselves for political candidacy, a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes. But in doing so, Campaigning 101 says, here's a few things that need to happen, a few components if you're going to enter the race. You need a big announcement. You need to develop your brand, and you need to have your position on key issues. Well, Yahweh gives his big announcement in verse 1. Let's read it again. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. This introduction of God's chosen servant is nothing short of impressive. God says, here's the one that I'm going to introduce. Here's the one that has my backing, who has my power. And in verses 1, 3, and 4 in this first section, we're going to see the scope of his mission. If God's introducing his servant, what will his platform be? What will his stance be on the key issues? What ticket will he run on? Well, what we're going to see in these verses, the repetition, the theme, the thrust of this, the emphasis of this section is justice for the nations. Justice for the nations. So while introducing his chosen servant, God declares the scope of his mission is global. It's not merely national. It's not relegated to just Israel alone. The scope of this is global. It's justice for the nations, plural. And this theme is going to be carried forward, continued through all the servant songs. But listen to Isaiah 49. God is going to communicate this in the second servant song in a really unique way. We're going to spend more time on it next week. But in Isaiah 49, verse 6, here's what God says about this mission. It is too light a thing, too little a thing, too narrow a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This mission is way too big to merely be limited, narrowed to Israel alone. Listen to the repetition in this focus of justice in the first four verses so that we can understand the scope of this mission. In verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. In verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. In verse 4, till he established justice in the earth. This is not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that we're introduced to this mission. We could trace the storyline of Scripture. We could go all the way back to Genesis and introduce you to this thing that you've heard time and time again. We could go back to seed promise, blood picture in Genesis 3 and introduce you to this mission. We could go back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 and say this has been God's plan all along. The nations are in view here. But let's just consider Isaiah for a moment. Let's just think back a couple weeks ago what we're reminded of in Isaiah 40. God gives a word of comfort to the nation of Israel despite the consequences that they would face in exile. So in Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, listen to God's word. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This word of comfort comes in in Isaiah 40. God's going to continue to reinforce that, and he will tell the nation in Isaiah 41 and 43 and 44, fear not. Fear not. You can trust me. I'm giving you a word of comfort. Even though you violated our agreement this covenant, the vassal treaty, and you will face the consequences for that, I'm going to come through for you. I'm going to show up in power. One of the practical challenges that faces this nation during this time is when is Isaiah writing? This is all future reality for them. It's all future. It's not their present reality. It's very challenging and difficult You know, what do we want? We want a word for today. Just tell me how to live. Just tell me what to do. Just speak into my life practically. Give me something. And what does God do for the nation of Israel? He speaks a word into their life. And it will be fulfilled, as God says. But the timing, it's really difficult for us as humans to wrap our mind around God's timing. This timing is crazy. When he says a little while, what does a little while mean to you, God? Because a little while to me is really short. We have a hard time living past the immediate. We have a hard time thinking in a different kind of timeline. And yet everything that's written to the nation of Israel through Isaiah is written, and it's written way in advance. Now, that's intentional. God's doing something here. But because this isn't their present reality, how are they meant to live? How do they live when they will be facing the consequences for violating the covenant? You will face these consequences. All right. When? 
When's that going to happen? Well, about 100 plus years later. Well, okay. How do they live when they will be exiled? All right. What's that going to look like? When's that going to happen? How long? What's the timeline? Well, it's when I say it's going to happen. Try parenting that way, right? I mean, it's great. This is like, like God parenting teenagers. This is what's really happening. You will return from exile. How long will that be? Oh, about 70 years. Think of that. That's our lifetime. That's our lifespan. And oh, by the way, all along this journey, I will continue to be your God. How do you receive a message like that? When you are going to face judgment, I mean, try parenting your, your teenager like that. Yeah, yeah, you're going to be in trouble. Okay, when's that going to happen? Huh? When I feel like it, when I say. Remember, I'm the parent, I'm in charge. It, it, it's like, okay, this thing is looming, but is it ever going to happen? Right, they're not going to come through, sure. And then if you give them a timeline like this, I mean, does it impact their life in the immediate? It should. It should cause them to wake up and see, but it doesn't. And God is merciful and gracious, and He delays intentionally, and the nation never really ever gets their act together. And so once exile actually happens, and this text becomes more tangible more real a hundred years later, 170 years later, and they're reading this and going, oh, when this actually happens and they're in exile, how do you think the nation's going to feel at that moment? This thing was written way before then. Now they're facing exile. No doubt they're going to feel like, where's God in all this? He doesn't care. He doesn't see. He doesn't know. What's God doing? No doubt they would feel abandoned, forgotten, that God's unable to come through. But God anticipates these feelings, these questions, these emotions. Let's go back to Isaiah 40 and look at verse 27. Because when they're facing exile, it's easy to charge God with, he's not just, he's not fair, where is he? He's unable to come through, he doesn't see us, he doesn't care. And yet, he's already said, as he's been describing himself in Isaiah 40, we heard this two weeks ago, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right, my justice is disregarded by my God. Why do you say that? Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's the one who gives strength. He's the one who upholds. He's the one who renews. He's going to come through. This is all written so that they will see and know and believe and trust this God especially when circumstances felt contrary, seemed opposite. It's easy to trust God when everything seems to be going well. It's very challenging for us to trust God when the bottom drops out. And for us, that looks like something. 
in each one of our lives. For Israel, it was going to be hauled off to Babylon in exile for 70 years. That's the bottom dropping out. I've never been a refugee or an exile somewhere. I can't imagine that's pleasant. Being ripped from your homeland, all of your stuff. I mean, we have a hard time putting ourselves there. It would be really easy to be doubting God during that season. And God anticipates those doubts. He anticipates those fears. He anticipates those questions. And he realizes, and he can shoulder this, the accusation from us as humans. Because what do we level against God in those moments? God, you're not fair. You're not just. You don't see. Well, a brief word on justice. (laughs) This is something that we cling to as humans. We all want justice. We want it individually. We want it for our family. We don't always see it. It doesn't play out that well. I've got personal stories within my family that we will never see justice this side of eternity. And you probably have similar stories. You can resonate. The desire for justice, it flows from the belief that we're righteous and we have, we deserve to be dealt with fairly. We have rights. The word justice can be defined in the following ways as the quality, process, or result of being just, fair, or righteous in various contexts. This word has two main senses. First, it's a judicial legal where it deals with the act of sitting as a judge, hearing a case, and rendering a proper verdict. And the second, it can refer to the rights belonging to someone And that has several nuances. Due to the variety of the nuanced factors, we make justice fit our definitions or our presuppositions. And we believe that we deserve to always be, we're always on the right side of justice. So what happens when our sense of justice is violated? What happens, how do we respond when an authority figure acts or rules in ways we deem unjust? What about when we feel wrong, violated, persecuted, oppressed? We not only expect justice, we demand justice. And who are we angry against? Not only the people that we can see, but ultimately the God that we can't see because we know that He can change the situation. With just a word, He could fix it, and this thing would be done And yet he doesn't, so he's to blame. We're completely validated by our right to be vindicated. We start flipping through the passages of Scripture and we find texts like Psalm 26 and we're like, right here, this is what I resonate with right now. And then we pray Psalm 26 and and Psalms like it. We expect God to vindicate us based on our integrity. Could our vantage point be limited? Could our perspective be so myopic that our narcissism overrides our sensibilities that we could possibly be wrong? Could we possibly be blind or deaf to our righteousness or our idea of justice? Maybe, but probably not, right? And how dare you even level the question? We naturally play the victim quite well, it's us against the world. Everyone else is the problem, the enemy. We've been wronged. We deserve justice. 
and we expect God to come through. And now is the time that we insert all these imprecatory prayers, right? And there's tons of psalms that we can be praying, going, God, get them, get them, get them, get them, get them. And then we'll feel a little bit better when God comes through. However we define or demand justice, the reality and desire for justice is actually both God-given and universal. Justice is a good thing. It's just our perspective is often skewed. And why is that? Because like everything else in this life, it's been marred by sin. So our idea of justice, what we think God should be doing because we know better than Him, all of it is marred by sin. Our motives are tainted by sin. So where the law demands justice, what should we expect? Do we want God to be just or merciful? Oh, well, that depends, right? We want Him to be both, but who's He dealing with in this moment? Me or you? Me, us, or them? We want God to be merciful when He's dealing with us and get Him. <laughs> Just, you know, and so... We, you know, so we have tension there. We struggle with this. What kind of strategic plan can pull off a mission of global justice? Think about it. Who can right the wrongs for a nation, let alone the nations? How can this strategic plan of justice for the nations, this global justice, actually be carried out? Well, in verses 2 and 3, we find out the strategic plan presented in these verses is about as unorthodox as they come. This is not the way any of us would see this unfold. It goes against conventional wisdom. No one would be so bold as to run on the platform and promise global justice. And then no one would seek to carry it out the way that God does. This is just crazy. We're going, okay, fine. I can get behind and vote for global justice. But I don't think this is going to get the job done. Just saying, I know you've not, you know, petitioned me and pulled me into your chamber and said, hey, I want your advice here. God's not done that. We've not been his counselor. Isaiah 40 makes it very clear. But I really don't think it's going to work out in our favor. For starters, God doesn't announce how he will accomplish global justice. What does he lead with? In verses 2 and 3, look at the text. He leads with what he will not be doing. This is what my chosen servant will not be doing. This is what it will not look like. It will not look like, verses 2 and 3, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So what will he not be doing? Well, he will not be campaigning politically to hold office, win votes, rewrite legislature. He will not be inciting a rebellion or a coup. He will not try to slowly take over. He will not come in with his military might and just annihilate those who are sitting in power and then set up his own reign. He's not going to do that. He's not going to come in and take advantage of people or situations even when the opportunity presents itself. 
He's not going to act like this. Everything that we see on the horizontal, he's going to be different. So just because he can snuff out a faintly burning wick or break a bruised reed, he's not going to do that. He's going to choose to operate much differently. As we'll see at the conclusion of this song in verse 9, God's saying, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I'm doing new things. And before they happen, I'm going to tell you. This theme kind of continues throughout Isaiah. God continues to go on the record. But instead of wiping out nations and people, he's going to do something new and rescue people and redeem people. This is going to be mind-blowing for the nation of Israel But listen to how he uses similar language in Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43, verses 16 and 17, the picture that's being painted, the image that you should get in your head is the Exodus. What from the Exodus? Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Sound familiar? What did God do to the Egyptian army, the entire Egyptian army, as they went through the Red Sea? He extinguished them. Like we'd extinguish a wick of a candle. And then he goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do, and do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. That's what my chosen servant is going to do. The former ways of dealing with this stuff and flexing my muscles, God says, not doing it this way. My chosen servant's going to do something different. Instead of annihilating his enemies, extinguishing them, he's going to do something different. Instead of destroying them and breaking them, he's going to rescue, save, redeem them. That's what's going on. As this servant moves forward, Israel could really be scratching their head saying, why is he not drawing all people to himself? Why is he going to act this way in Isaiah 42? Unorthodox. Well, this... The way that you would anticipate this end happening actually is the way it plays out. This approach isn't going to gain you the position that you think it's going to. Actually, by the time we get to Isaiah 53, verse 9, we're going to see that this servant is actually going to be condemned, although he's innocent. And in verse 9 says he's innocent of both violence and deceit, and yet there's going to be an end to him. We're getting there. This is just week one. This is the introduction of the servant. That's why you need to read all of these servant songs, this compilation, this epic poem. And so the way that God is laying this out, the way he's introducing this, and the conclusions you could be drawing are actually going to happen. And you're like, how in the world can global justice actually take place if this is the end? But regardless of what anyone thinks about the mission of global justice or the strategy to accomplish it, 
the chosen servant will have the ability to see the mission through. That's what verse 4 tells us. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands hope in his law. The coastlands are anticipating him to come through. This is the global reach. Justice will be established in the earth. This mission will be accomplished. The servant of God will be the spirit-empowered agent of justice. And then we move into verses 5 through 9. And not only does God introduce his servant in 1 through 4, and he speaks of him, now he's going to address his servant, confirming his choice and speak directly to his servant. Look at verses 5 through 9. Yahweh gets our attention, and he declares his authority, and he sets up his servant, and now as he speaks to him, we're going to see that God not only has the credentials to pull this thing off, this mission of global justice, the scope and strategy of the mission, but he's the only one who has the ability to declare it in advance and then perform it, fulfill it. And that's what he does. Listen to how verse 5, as God's speaking to his servant, listen to how verse 5 really is a summary of all of Isaiah 40. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. This is the creator. He's saying, I am the heavyweight champion of the universe. I've created this thing. I sustain this thing. I give life and breath to everyone on it. And now in verses 6 and 8, he's also starting and closing this thing off with a word of his name, his authority. So Yahweh opens and closes the confirmation with the declaration of his name. In verse 6, I am the Lord. That Lord in all caps is Yahweh. Deborah read the text correctly. We don't hear it all the time, but he says, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. In verse 8, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. My praise I don't give to carved idols to images. This is in direct contrast to all the pagan nations. This is in direct contrast to the deities that Israel is following instead of following Yahweh. He says, my glory and my name I will attach to no other. So then as we're considering this servant, and as in the next couple weeks we'll continue to consider this servant, what should we be thinking about him? If God's glory and name is not attached to any other deity, this should cause us to have some serious questions about the person and nature of this chosen servant. Could he be the long-anticipated Messiah? In verses 6 and 7, we find that the spiritual nature of this mission is something way different than just what our eyes can see and our ears hear in the physical, tangible stuff that we want to see happen. The servant's identity will be marked by righteousness, is what he says in verse 6. I have called you in righteousness. And he will operate under the authority and the protection of Yahweh. He will follow his marching orders, and nothing will be able to interfere with this mission. Nothing. 
I will take you by the hand, God says, and I will keep you. I will guard you. I will protect you. But then these next couple stanzas as verse 6 wraps up and as we get into verse 7, it paints a really interesting picture of justice. The servant is given as a covenant for the people. He's given as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Well, what does this mean in light of the existing covenant? How does it operate in light of that? Why is it directed at the nations and not just the nation of Israel? What's the description of blindness referring to? How will he open the eyes of the blind? What dungeon is he releasing prisoners from? Why will his mission be described as bringing people from darkness to light? These are all valid questions. And all of these questions point to a mission that's far greater than earthly, physical, utopic global justice. There's something bigger at play than just conquering whatever nation has brought them into exile. It's bigger than Egypt, bigger than Assyria, bigger than Babylon, bigger than Rome, bigger than any nation right now that could be flexing its muscles in global domination. God's doing something bigger. Only one servant could accomplish a mission of this caliber, this magnitude. Only one servant could allow this new covenant to bring spiritual sight, freedom from sin and death, freedom to know and enjoy God. Only the promised Messiah could possibly live up to this mission, this calling. Well, Matthew actually quotes today's text to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic king who would accomplish this mission. So Matthew quotes Isaiah in this to prove that the one that we've been waiting for, this chosen servant, is Jesus. Well, Paul picks up the same kind of a theme in Romans 3, 21 through 26. And the apostle Paul writes about a righteousness that we need apart from the law, a righteousness the law could never provide. And God goes on the record to demonstrate His righteousness through Jesus. If you have a moment, you can sit and listen. It's better if you see with your eyes and hear with your ears. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Our text is part of that bearing witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do we want God to be just or merciful. By the time we get 
to Jesus, we see God as both. And He is able to be both just and justifier because of His chosen servant and the mission that He accomplishes. We round out this text in Isaiah 42, verse 9, when God gives His guarantee that the mission will be completed. He puts His stamp of approval, His authority. He concludes this mission by saying, I am going on the record before it ever happens, I'm going to state it. I'm going to tell you what I previously said would happen, did happen. Look at verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let the record show that God can be trusted. Let the record show, God says, that my word can be trusted. Hundreds of years in advance, I'm going on the record to say that something's going to happen. And just because it doesn't happen in your time doesn't mean it's not true. And he says, the former things, the things that I already told you, did come to pass. So therefore, what other gods, what other idols can actually prove themselves the way I have, the way I am, and the way I will? Let them. Let them go on the record like I have to prove themselves. Let them do something good or bad. Who cares? Let them prove themselves. Let them speak if they can. And that's what he does in Isaiah 41. He challenges, really, the nation to say, look at the gods that you're trusting in. Can they do what I'm doing? Can they do anything? It's foolishness. It's empty to think that they can. He calls them on the carpet. You could focus on even just verses 21, Isaiah 41, 21 through 24 alone. God just sets them up and says, hey, if you can, go ahead but he knows they can't. And as we come to the conclusion of this text, it's rarely one thing with God. It's rather layers of promise and fulfillment. There's immediate fulfillment, and then there's layers of future fulfillment. That's challenging for us as humans to wrap our minds around or to be okay with. We want to see things play out linear. We want to see them play out in a short time frame. We want to, you know, be able to see the equation and work the formula. And yet God rarely operates like that. This text appears to have a much further reach than just dealing with the nation of Israel and going into exile and returning from exile. It reaches hundreds of years into the future. And for us, it's hundreds of years into the past. As we come to a text like this, we approach it in very similar ways that the nation of Israel was called to approach the text. They were told that God can be trusted even though it may or may not happen in their lifetime. God's word is true and he's going to come through. Can we process that? Are we living by faith that God's word is true and that He's going to send His Son to return, and we're waiting, anticipating, longing for that day, though it may or may not happen in our lifetime. We can resonate in similar ways that Israel could, but this is just merely the first of four servant songs. This serves as the introduction 
to all four. In the next three weeks, we'll be examining the other three servant songs and then compiling them all together for a more complete picture. But this first servant song leaves us with a growing anticipation of the arrival of Yahweh's chosen servant and the justice that He will establish in the earth. He's promising it. Can He come through? Will He come through? How will He come through? What will this look like? What if there's more layers of fulfillment within this song? What if the fullest expression of this song will be realized in the Messiah? What if the Messiah, the covenant for the people, will fulfill the former things, the old covenant, and establish the new things, a new covenant? What if this answer is a person? What if the answer is to spiritual blindness, not just physical blindness? What will that look like? Freedom. Release from prison. What will that look like? What if the answer is to speak to the spiritual blindness and the brokenness of sin and release from that prison? What if it's as simple as knowing and believing God, taking Him at His word, and then as we see in the New Testament, seeing that fullest expression in Jesus? So as we conclude right now, with today's text, Isaiah doesn't explicitly reveal to us who his chosen servant is. God's not saying in this passage, in this introduction, here he is. He's introducing him, but we're left with anticipation. How does the New Testament help us understand? How does the New Testament give us the ability to see with greater clarity that this one that God was talking about would actually be Jesus, the Messiah. When it comes to application and wrestling through a passage like this, there's several things. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you the million different ways that I would encourage you to think through application. What I would encourage you to do is pick up the manuscript and read through some of the passages that are connecting some of these dots. Take the time to read through all four servant songs in preparation for the next couple weeks. Take some time to remind yourself of where we come from in reading Isaiah chapters 1, 6, 9, 11, 12, 40, and just reminding ourselves of this God. Can we trust Him? There's a few themes and topics that are worth further exploration and discussion, topics like idolatry, that this is set in the context of idolatry. We're not too sophisticated. We're not too educated. We're not far removed. We think that it's only about carved images and graven images and these things that people are bowing down to, but idolatry is pervasive in our modern world. It's not relegated to pagans and ancients and, you know, these remote islands and deep jungles. And what about justice? Will God's mission of global justice be reality? Is it reality? What does that look like? Do we want God to be just or fair? Explore these passages further. Talk about them around the dinner table. And then ultimately, how do we see Jesus? as the finest and fullest fulfillment of this servant, God's chosen servant who would bring global justice 
for the nations. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the text. Thank you for being true to your word. We got to confess that your timetable is way different than ours, and we struggle with that. Just being honest, it's difficult to wrap my mind around just chunks of time and chunks of time that exceed my lifetime, decades, hundreds of years. And yet your word's true. What you spoke, you have completed. What you promised, you have fulfilled. And the question we wrestle with is, can we trust you? And your word continues to remind us that we can. Whether we see it or not, whether we feel it or not, we bring our emotions, our feelings, our circumstances, our relationships, our situations, and we filter them through a text to get a glimpse of this God that we can't see, a God who's revealed himself through your word and you've revealed yourself through your son. So help us to see with clarity how Jesus is enough. Even as we work through the book of Isaiah and seek to wrap our minds around it and be refreshed by this God who loves us and is willing to delay our timetable, what we think should happen in order to really accomplish a true salvation. Thank you for rescuing us from sin and death and providing for us the ability to be justified and not compromise yourself in any way. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.